Thanks for joining me for the Friday Reporter Podcast. My name is Lisa Camuso Miller, and I am a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., talking to reporters from all across the country about how it is they do their work and how it is we as communication professionals can do ours better. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's episode is especially exciting for me because I get to talk to a friend and a colleague that not only has a journalism background, he spent some time as a communicator on Capitol Hill and now is a local investigative journalist here in Washington, D.C. Scott McFarland, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lisa. What a treat to have you here. I think I, uh, I mentioned to you just a moment ago before we uh, got started that um, you are a voice that is not only uh, familiar to me and known to me, but one that is known in my home too, because you now are this great local journalist for NBC4 and uh, are doing some really remarkable things here in the DC marketplace. Um, but my my question always to get started, I know a little bit about your background, but I want you to talk to me a little bit about, you went to Syracuse University, you have a great background from a great communication school. Tell me a little bit about how your path uh, got you to journalism, how that got you into a, a spot on the Hill and sort of how you arrived to where you are today. Yeah, there was two moments. One moment got me into journalism and then one moment got me into Washington, D.C., into the Hill. Mm-hmm. I was in, in high school. I did like everything. I was in the marching band, the basketball team, the baseball team, the, the yearbook. And I was exceptionally bad at everything I did. I was enthusiastic <laughs> and energetic and they liked having me around, but I was terrible. And then I joined the quiz bowl team, you know, mm-hmm. the, the little jeopardy games you play in high school on yeah. TV. Yeah. And I was the least knowledgeable person on that team too, but I was the best because I, I was the only kid who got in there at 14 years old and didn't lock up in front oh, of the wow. cameras. It didn't get nervous. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I just, the lights didn't bother me. I'm not sure why. They probably should have. It wasn't, you know, exceptionally outgoing, but it just uh, something clicked. Yeah. And I realized the cameras and microphones don't intimidate me. I probably should do something with that. So oh, like cool. nothing else seems to be working. <laughs> so I went to school for broadcasting, and yeah, I, I just got my sea legs pretty fast. I don't know why. I, I, it's perhaps ignorance or just you know <laughs> foolishness that audiences don't bother me. And that that's a thing. Cause when, it is I, a thing. T- today, when I'm, I'm going to go on MSNBC today at three o'clock and there'll be a couple hundred thousand people watching and all I see is a camera lens. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some type of, you know, mindset you have to have the same way. I guess if you're shooting a free throw at the end of a, of, a, of, a, of an NBA finals game, you have to be able to shoot a free throw without freaking out. Yeah. I, I guess I had that. And I, I realized I should probably do something in that world because it's maybe the only skill I have. And now <laughs> when I was in, I was doing television in, in Syracuse initially, then mm-hmm. in Detroit, then in Cleveland. And I, I just, something wasn't, something wasn't settling right. And I, I realized after about eight or nine years of doing it, that my affinity, my hobby, my interest, my everything outside of my job is I love Congress. I, I majored not just in broadcasting, but in poli sci okay. in college. Yeah. I loved covering local government, school boards, city councils, county councils. But you know, Congress was to me the the dream. And Super Bowl. I just walked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not alone, right? I mean, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's, that's why I'm here thing. too. Yeah. And I just decided in, in the middle of a contract at a pretty good job in Cleveland, like I'm I'm leaving. 
I'm, I, can you let me go? I'm going to go find a job in Washington working for Congress. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, wow. but I'm going to do it. How bold. And, That's so cool. And I, I, mean, I wasn't making a ton of money, but yeah. I was making good TV money in a pretty cheap city. So it was economically risky. I just had just proposed um, or sorry, just gotten married to okay. my wife. So we were newlyweds. And she took the leap moved. of faith with you. All right, cool. She did. She did. She's like, it sounds like you really want this. So mm-hmm. we, we, we came here. And I found um, for my TV job in Detroit that I'd had previous, there was a member of Congress I covered who remembered me um, as a reporter and was, I, I don't know, it was her thought that if I hired this guy to be on my staff, maybe I can get on TV more because he knows all the TV people in my city. That That's is, true. Yeah, and that is totally true. And a lot of members actually have done that and, and done it successfully. I had I knew nothing of what I needed to know. Otherwise, I didn't understand what her subcommittees were. I didn't understand how subcommittees work. I didn't know the difference between appropriations and authorizations. Oh, but or, isn't that refreshing? You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't think she cares. Yeah. She's like you know how to get these, these these people on the phone, and so that was that was a strategic decision by both of us. And I got to tell you, I was only working on the Hill for about a year, year or two. I still. I think it's the most fun year or two I've ever had professionally. Mm-hmm. It was a blast. And you know what the difference is, Lisa, between between one of the differences between television and congressional work is television and most journalism, for better or for worse, your biggest competitors are your colleagues. I mean, there's only one lead story. There's yeah. only one best assignment. There's only one anchor the newscast. Everybody else kind of looks side-eye at, at the others mm-hmm. at, at times. It, friendly but competitive yeah and the hill you are a team yeah you have a constituency of one a principle to serve and you all succeed or fail together and there's that kinship and that friendliness and that, that family bond you form i've never seen that in in media and that's, that's a, where that's we became step. that's where we became friends i mean we were in exactly. these in these strategy meetings together trying to figure out how to position our boss as well but how as a team to perform best to uh, put ourselves in the best light and that was really that's fun right. yeah and so, so you were there for, for a short period of time, like me. I mean, I was on the, on the Hill just a few short years. And then I uh, took a, a spot with a, a political committee. And then I dared to have children in Washington, D.C., like, <laughs> like many of us do, and had to figure out how to, you know, be home in time for dinner. You went, um, and you went to, did you go straight to NBC, or did you have a stop off no. before that? I made a more a natural transition. I became congressional reporter for the Cox Media Group for okay. about eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I remember. They've got all those local TV stations around the country who want to have a Washington, D.C. reporter to chase down the local members of Congress, the local angles to the big bill on the floor, the local you know person visiting the White House, um, TV stations in Atlanta, San mm-hmm. Francisco, Boston. So I was their Washington reporter. It made a lot of sense for Cox because I, I kind of parlayed this. Cox is like, we need a reporter who's got some TV experience, who is already living here, right. and who knows the Hill. So again, you know, just the same way I kind of used my TV experience to get on the hill, I used my hill experience to get back on TV. So how did that work for you? Like, did you have, did it, do you feel like it made your ability to, to make that bridge back to colleagues on the hill for interviews? Was that, was it, um, was it easier? Was it harder? How did that, how did you feel like that transition was to go from the hill back to journalism um, as it relates to just sort of relationships? It's the most natural transition I've ever made professionally. Oh, that's and so good. I, I would encourage media executives to look hard 
at congressional staff Mm -hmm. because they come in with a whole bunch of pluses. First of all, congressional staff, you know, we, we move in and out quickly. You know, when you're in your twenties and you're working on the Hill, you're in your thirties, you're drinking buddies with all the other staffers, felt these, this network of friendly relationships. And then by the time you you transition to your next life, and if it's in media, you're all drinking buddies or chiefs of staff (laughs) or staff directors. That's right. That's good people to know. Yes. And, and, and the Capitol police, you get to know going in and out of the doors, the names you learn. Absolutely. They're very good sources in the case of, I don't know, an insurrection. Yeah. Um, so, it's and plus congressional staff have a few unique things going for them. They're particularly attuned to constituent services. They know how to return a phone call. Mm -hmm. They know how to get things done promptly on a deadline when somebody needs something and not all professions bring that skill set. Congressional staff are expert on certain areas. Mm -hmm. You you're expert on, on your, whatever legislative work works in your portfolio. If you're in LA, a legislative assistant, you're expert on a geographical region, your district inside those lines, you're expert on how committees function. That's very practical information to have in media and journalism because we need specialists. Media needs people who know a beat who don't know a million things, but know five or six things really well. And that's, you get that from congressional staff. It was a very natural transition. I'm so glad to hear that. I had wondered. Walking back in the media with with that information really helped me. Well, and that, that to me, I mean, makes a ton of sense. I always make the joke though, that, uh, that it's the communication staff that is the most overlooked in every Capitol Hill office. And it's because we're not the policymaker, we're not the policy writer, and we're not the, uh, the negotiator, if you will, sort of the legislative team. And so oftentimes people will meet you at a, at an event and ask you what your job is for the member. And when you say communications director, they sort of look over your shoulder to whoever is the next <laughs> most interesting person. But the thing right. that I always say is don't sleep on the communication staff because they are the ones writing the testimony. They are the ones writing the press materials. They are preparing their bosses to be in front of the camera. And so not only are they well-skilled in all of those areas you mentioned, they also really are the mouthpiece for the boss. And those are the kinds of skills too that very well translate beyond uh, the congressional office. So that's, um, that's so interesting to hear. But so you, I've, I've admired the work that you have done over the course of the last few weeks and months since January 6th. The work that you are doing now for NBC here in D.C. is so important to keep that discussion um, alive and in the front of people to understand sort of the motives and um, the actions that have been penalized and punished for what had happened in the Capitol that day. Tell me a little bit about how that research is going for you and how that process is is uh, working. Yeah, I, I'm almost exclusively almost exclusively working on January 6th coverage right now. And that's, 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 a, that's different for me. A lot of investigative journalists have 10 or 20 stories in the queue or those 10 or 20 plates spinning at once. I pretty much have just one right now. Wow, it's a big it, one it's, though. It's a big one. It is, especially for somebody who worked in the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know. It's personal. You, yeah, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't help it be personal. It's, mm-hmm. it's hallowed ground. So I mean, that, the, the visceral reaction Americans have, we had it on steroids. We saw that happening. So it's easy to be motivated. And I've had a few people who are kind enough, like you just were, to, to thank me for sticking with the story. It, it, I appreciate that. It's not charity. I, I, this is the only story in my life, in my career as a journalist, where interest has increased over time. Yeah, That's the opposite dynamic of all news. Usually like when a- you're covering a news story, 
get people turn the page eventually. Let's move on to something fresh. What's the new thing? What's what's this is different. You're performing uh, an autopsy. I mean, really, that's sort of yeah. how it feels to me, like an autopsy right. of all of the events and all of the participants in that. So that's ex- interesting to hear. That's a good analogy. It's an autopsy when the thing that killed the person is still out there, too. Like, we need mm-hmm. to know what, what happened here because this threat is growing. Yeah. And you have you have denialism that's happening. People are trying to, to rewrite this history, so we got to push back against that. But I, there's something in Americans that have made them four months, almost 150 days now after the insurrection, mm-hmm. just starving for updates because yeah. we, we, we can't comprehend what happened. We can't make sense of this. It, it doesn't make sense. It's inconceivable. So anybody that sheds light on what holy heck happened is going to get an audience. And my mm-hmm. engagements on broadcast, my engagements on digital, and my engagements on social media are exponentially larger than they were in March. I believe it. I mean, that doesn't, that, 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 that runs against the, the, the muscle memory of every other news story in history where people are more engaged now than then. And so you also have a couple of other unique dynamics. This is the largest criminal investigation in American history. There'll be books written about this. So yeah, there's going to be an appetite there. There's 460 defendants so far who are, have yet to have really their big day in court. Yeah. You know, no, only one plea agreement. Nobody's gone to trial. So there's a lot waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. 250,000 tips have gone into the FBI. Just wrap your mind around 250,000 of anything. I cannot imagine. It, no. This is this is inconceivable stuff. So there's there's an appetite there. And just as a journalist, I this is my first time playing in this particular field. But when it, there were at the start about a dozen of us who were dutifully trying to chase this down mm-hmm. every thread. And it's, it's seven days a week. It's, sure. um, you know, it's a side eyed look from your wife and kids when it's. <laughs> 9 a.m. on a Saturday when you're still on the computer and they want you to do things. Yeah. But it's, it's exhausting. Um, it's, it's easy to stay motivated. But eventually, some people will quit on, on the chase. Sure. And the fewer and fewer of us that are pursuing it, the larger our audience has grown. That's amazing. And I'm sponging up from the people who have given up on trying to chase 460 criminal cases and 240,000 tips. So to a degree, the longer we stay with it, the more our audience can grow. And right now, audience growth it's hard to come by in broadcast no television kidding. and in media. So no kidding. And people don't have, like, I mean, as you said, this is this is sort of bucking the trend that is the short attention span. Uh, and it's so interesting to, to think about it that way, especially because, um, you know, it is a story that for you, especially with your background, it's an intersection of all of the experience that you have. I mean, from the Hill to, you know, covering Capitol Hill for other states and also now here in Washington, D.C., it is really sort of a confluence of all of your experience and a perfect um, opportunity for you to really continue to, to highlight that. And I, and I, I know it's a lot of work because I am following you every day and seeing all the um, information that you're putting out there. And I can't tell you, I mean, as someone who not only worked in the Capitol but live here in the – uh, the district. I mean, I just, it's, it's so important. And thank you for, for doing that. Um, how, and go ahead, please. The, the comms people who, 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 who hear this, there is no real comms operation being run by the justice department on this. There, there's really not, there are people, but there's no coordinated effort. There's no daily press release. There's no press update. There's no you know, email chain. This is all guerrilla warfare. You have to go into the, the federal court dockets and, and go through everything 
every day to find out what happened that day. And that's that's good for enterprising reporters because it means if I find something that hadn't been announced yet, I've got a scoop. I've got new. scoops every day. So yeah. For some of us, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful job security. It's awful for the public that there's no coordinated effort here to, to disseminate information broadly, contextually, accurately, mm-hmm. and regularly. It's, right. it's an absolutely awful reality that we have one of the biggest events in our lifetimes and there's no coordinated government comms planned to disseminate the information. It's preposterous. And I guess that's what they're debating now is is to having this January 6th commission that really sort of, to me, puts a finer point on why that is so relevant and needed is that there is no other coordinated effort. It it, at a minimum, it's needed at a minimum. Got it. That totally that makes that makes complete sense to me. I mean, it all, already made a lot of sense, and we don't need to get into the back and forth on politics because we could debate that for another lifetime. But yeah. um, it to me, it, the other thing too, I think that people maybe don't understand is that what used to be uh, a very um, robust staff and robust um, operation in investigations has now become very lean. And so not only are you doing that research yourself, perhaps with a, with a couple of other folks, but you are doing a lot of that work and then reporting it out too. So that is a huge task and an important task that you're doing every day. And there's a lot of platforms. I mean, the, the, the broadcast platform, the broadcast television newscast each night, there's different levels of interest in it. Um, I've actually got more cable interest than in local news interest, mm-hmm. um, which is which is fine. The, the cable audience really craves this. The local news audience still needs to get its weather, still needs to know if the highway is closed, still yeah. needs to know if the schools are open. And, right. I, and I'm respectful and, and appreciate that. Sure. Uh, the digital audience is... is Things can go viral very quickly. They like this. The social media often, this is a story built for them mm-hmm. because right now through a year or two now, Lisa, we'll have uh, incremental updates every hour for a year or two. And that, that, that dynamic, if you try to wrap your head around it, it'll, it'll make you dizzy. Yeah. But that is custom made for the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram audience. They love incremental nuggets of news that take them 10 seconds to read. So this, this will grow the engagements and the audiences of social media um, people who are reporting on it um exponential i, uh-huh. I think i've had a 800 percent increase in followers on my channels just since february i believe and it I that's believe a crazy gro- that's a crazy growth chart well and i hope i hope you realize it's a testament to the work you're doing tell me though um you know so here we are we're doing all of this reporting and you mentioned that you weren't physically in the building that day how is reporting now? I mean, you know, so we're hopefully we're seeing the pandemic starting to wane. My, my, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. How is journalism for you? I mean, you are on the scene every day. You are doing the work. You're at the site. You're talking about it. What does journalism look like now for you um, as we sort of are in the, the final, hopefully, throes of this uh, quarantine? I think a lot of us have been reporting on January 6th who were not there have a bit of survivor's remorse mm. because it's you know, the people who are there have a visceral, palpably different experience and one that I can't even imagine or certainly can't replicate. So I want to say that up front. Those mm-hmm. who are chasing it who weren't there, we still feel like a little, little hollow inside because there's something we don't know and we'll never be able to figure out. Right. Um, how you cover this remotely, there is one um, logistical advantage. Everything, every part of this story in terms of the criminal prosecutions and the Justice Department's handling, it's all coming through the D.C. federal courthouse, Mm -hmm. which is great for those of us who function here in D.C., 
who know the clerks, who know the judges, know, who know the courthouse. So it's all, it's all coming to my home turf, even though very few of the people charged are from here. They're from yeah. Oregon and Texas and New York and Pennsylvania, but they're all coming to D.C. So that helps. They're yeah. coming onto my home field, and I, and I know how to play here. Um, covering, the, I, covering Congress right now is something, it's something different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I do a lot of my daily live reporting from the Russell Senate building It's because uh, yeah. that's the easiest place to get on cable news logistically and yep. aesthetically. It's obviously very pleasing, mm-hmm. but it, does, it doesn't feel the same. There's still no tour groups because of COVID is so disorienting. And again, I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but walking through the Capitol complex feels nothing like it used to in that regard. You don't see citizens. It's not the people's house. It's just some staff and most of them wearing masks and and the laborers. Mm -hmm. So it feels feels different. There is that fencing. The inner ring fencing is still up around the Capitol itself. That's disorienting also, and it feels a little wrong doesn't feel quite the same and there's not a whole lot of sourcing or you know retail journalism to do at the complex unless you want to chase the senators from six feet away and they don't come out very often everything's done remotely it's done by phone by message by by social and that's i don't know it's fine it's just not it doesn't feel very comprehensive it doesn't feel like i'm using all the tools i usually use yeah and, and that's part of the fun of of journalism in general is the interaction with the, the people and the sources that you that you work with so having that element sort of uh handicapped some with you know distance and masks and just sort of lack of access is got to be a bit of a challenge that, that you hadn't what, anticipated it's funny you mention that because that's one of the things I took very seriously in my time after the Hill when I was working for Cox and then working for NBC is we used to go office to office to interview members. Mm-hmm. Now, and some, 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 some crews, some journalists would be like, well, let's, let's do some, let's be smart about this. Let's set up our cameras in the Russell rotunda or the Cannon rotunda and have all the members come to us. So we don't have to break down our equipment, slap it all over the place and lug it around. And that's right. But if you go office to office to do your interviews, there's a lot more trucking of equipment, a lot of more walking. But you get to walk into that main entry area of a member's office suite and meet the staff assistants. Mm-hmm. And the staff assistants are only staff assistants for now. That's right. They're going to be promoted to be legislative correspondents, press secretaries, chiefs of staff. And you'll be happy you met them yes. um, and got to know them. You only get to meet them if you go to the office. That's it. And they eventually rise up. And that's a relationship. I, I can't build those relationships now because nobody's there. That's right. And that's frustrating as can be. One of my, uh, one of a, a previous guests had mentioned that uh, they were really glad that they had as many years in journalism under their belt as they had before the pandemic had hit because they had an already sort of a steady source list of folks that they had worked with and sort of lamented about how difficult it must be to be a younger journalist at this time because building up that source list is increasingly difficult because you can't sort of be in front of these people. It's almost impossible. Yeah. That's got to be so hard. Speaking of young journalists or young people in general, I know you have a a gaggle of McFarlands that are in your home and maybe are partially back to school or maybe are not. Um, what is keeping you guys busy on the weekends? What's, what's, you know, what sort of, what is everybody up to these days? So the, the tricky thing is what do we do on the bad weather days? Like, like all winter and you know, the Memorial day weekend, a really rainy weekend. What do you do? Used to be that, you know, 
I have to get the kids out of the house mm-hmm. to keep them from tearing the walls down because they're <laughs> seven and 10. And that's what seven and 10 year olds do, yeah. especially boys, yeah. but also to give mommy some time to do her work. She's yeah. a teacher, which means um, in this particular year, she's working seven days a week Absolutely. also to recreate the lesson plans. But mm-hmm. the problem is used to be on a snowy day or a rainy day or a crummy day. If we can't get outside the park, the kids would like a nice, exciting trip to Target or yeah. we'll go to, we'll go to Walmart and pick up some things and you can play with the toys and you can run around there. We can't do that in a pandemic. So no. like, I don't know how, how to keep them from tearing the house apart. I can tell you without equivocation, I have not succeeded in keeping them from tearing the house apart. Oh, I'm hardly judging you. I'm just living a similar life. I don't know how the screens, I mean, the, their eyes are melting. <laughs> Yeah, and I, think, and I think they're growing a little tired of me having seen nothing but me for 14 months. Yeah. Them going back to school was almost as life-changing as their births. Um, it's really – and also it, it, it liberates me when they're not here um, to, you know, to go out and you know, do my job. And mm-hmm. There's only so much work from home journalists can do, some of it, but not all of it. So being able to go out really helps. I'll tell you one thing I can I, I tell you is going to change. Newsrooms are going to give up those that still do it their start of the day everybody in the conference room editorial or organizational meetings interesting that that was a dynamic that existed in most newsrooms Uh i'm not sure why it existed for so long in major cities atlanta los angeles new york and here in washington everybody drives through the worst rush hours in america to sit together in a big conference room around a large table at 9 a.m to talk about stories Mm -hmm. and everybody by the time that meeting ended after the long drives after getting the kids off to school or daycare so you could make the long drive and get to work and have a long meeting by about 10 o'clock, you're toast. Yeah. Like you're exhausted. You're spent. Like Now we've learned that we can, we can do these by teams, by zoom or by phone and spend that hour or two grinding on our work. Yes. By 10 AM, we've got half our tasks done. Yeah. I think that's an innovation for those who deal with reporters. Know that they're, their, their mornings are changing. You want to adjust your pitches accordingly. You want to adjust your interview schedules accordingly. They're going to start the reporters are going to start the day a little earlier, be a little more efficient, more effective, and less exhausted by the time they talk to your principal, by the time they talk to your boss. That's interesting perspective. It's a, I mean, it's a great perspective too. And especially in DC where traffic is definitely, it's a component that we, it's a, it's a factor that we deal with every day. Um, Not having to get up and do that. I I think you'll also find that, that your journalists will have an opportunity to sort of take a breath and be a little bit more mindful too, because they haven't had to go through all that extra of having to get to where they need to be, go through the meeting and then have to start their day. Um, so that's, boy, I hope so. I hope you're right because it feels like uh, it also would give everybody a little bit of a breath before they start um, getting into the the meat of the day. I would also tell any the communications folks and media folks that over the next three to four months, you're going to have editorial managers in major media organizations asking their journalists to get away from the Zooms with for interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of people who you, you may be pitching for interviews, a lot of your you know, members of Congress have been, you know, they've gotten grown very accustomed to just sitting in front of their computer and talking to their hometown media or to the, to the, to reporters there. We're going to be under pressure now as journalists to get away from that because it two dimensional looking interviews don't make compelling digital or broadcast content. So the, you're, you're going to have to start managing the expectations of your boss that this convenience is going to partially go away. If we want to get on, if we want to get access to media. That's so interesting. That's they're so growing interesting. tired of it. And, and, we, and there are ways to do safe interviews in person. Now we're not scared of being outdoors with people. We're not scared of doing things with boom mics or standing just a few feet away. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I'm, I'm, 
it's not a mandate, but I'm sensing the urgency from from my editorial leaders. That let's let's get real television back. I heard this and, from another network uh, just this morning. I was talking about something else, and that was exactly the the sense was that if we're talking about Zoom, it's probably not something we're going to be interested in. We're looking for more you know dynamic television yeah. again. I that, get that's it. That's happening now. And, and, and I enjoy what I enjoyed about the Zoom with members of Congress was it was so much easier to schedule. And, and I, I bet that's true in spades for the actual schedulers. Mm-hmm, for <laughs> um, sure. As a reporter, like if I want to talk to the, the House Majority Leader by Zoom, you can have him for you in 10 minutes, Scott, versus, well, we have time at 8.40 next Thursday, but you've got to be on the House Triangle, not outside. Like, <laughs> I, I, so I, I'll miss that yeah that, that, because that dynamic's not going to at change. least that element is still available though if it's a breaking news or if it's something where you need someone in a pinch at least you know that Precisely. that's an option that you yeah. potentially can still access um going forward so scott we've reached the end of our uh, conversation we you and i could talk for another month because there hasn't been enough time to catch up and i'm so grateful for your time but my last question always for the podcast is who would you recommend for someone as a future guest someone you might l- like to hear from I th- I'd like to hear from people who are finding a way to, to keep people listening to the radio. Um, oh. they, you know, I'm not sure. I grew up making little mixtapes on my cassette recorder. Same. Um, you know, off the radio. Like, <laughs> Don't date us now. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest about it. Cause I, I still have the tapes. I yep. can't play them, but I have them. But there is – obviously radio has evolved. But there is just this smaller subset of people who can – on a broadcast radio station still in your car, mm-hmm. command a million people to listen. And I don't know how that's possible, but it happens. There are producers who know the secret sauce to make that happen in, in an era where we all could have kind of given up our radios. Okay. We don't need to make mixtapes anymore and we don't need you know and we don't need to listen to the to the the one guy who does the, the conservative talk show at noon because yeah. there's ten guys doing that on any channel at any time. I think somebody who figured out how to make that idiom survive in twenty twenty one would fascinate me. That's great. Do you have any favorites that you listen to yourself? I'm a serious XM guy, and I have to say that because I freelance there, and, <laughs> and they, so it's they do some very exciting stuff. Yeah. But for example, there, somebody's going to replace Rush Limbaugh in probably in a few days. Somebody has found a way to do the show after Rush Limbaugh and stay on for three hours. And whether you're a conservative or not, you have to acknowledge that is dynamic programming. Yes. It has millions of people tuning in regularly when there are a thousand other things to listen to in the car or at home and people who can do a nationally syndicated show and still command an audience in this day and age. Yeah. That's a modern day miracle. I love it. No, that's a great, and that's a great idea. And that's a, that's a whole area that I have spoken to Julie Mason from Sirius XM, who I love, who has her own show and was a ton of fun to talk to, but there are so many other great journalists that do, they have these great syndicated shows. So that's a great area um, to, to go into and to, um, advance into. So I will do some research. I will get back in touch with you. Let's you and I talk offline and find some more ideas, uh, for folks to have for a future show. Scott, I could also send you my old mixtape if you want. Hey, you know, I'd love it. I probably have one that's similar. I'm sure we like the same kind of music. (laughs) I'm so glad to see and to get a chance to talk to you today. And so glad to have you, uh, my best to the family. And thank you again for all the work you're doing. Thank you, Lisa. And that's today's episode of The Friday Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, D.C., what's going on, what's going on behind the headlines. 
We spend a lot of time talking about healthcare and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing. And I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it.